0: Hi, Dodge. Hey, <laughs> Pete. Um, you asked this question, or you didn't really ask the question, you were posing the thought exercise of like how we explore what it means to be wealthy. That there's rich and there's wealthy and then there's obscenely wealthy. And of mm. all the things in that conversation, that might have stuck with me the most. That, We're in a time and place where we collectively, many of us, are describing wealth in derogatory terms more than I feel like I ever experienced growing up. I don't have a script of of, uh, wealth as an obscenity from my youth. That feels like a new thing. Yeah. Isn't that a weird one? Do you remember when, when wealth got gross? you remember when it became obscene?
1: No, I do remember people sort of more. I remember it having a little more of a smile to it. Like people would describe Donald Trump as obscenely wealthy back when he was just parading around as a billionaire, but yeah. not um, not apparently hurting anybody. <laughs> um, sorry out there to my conservative friends. Um, and. It was sort of like, that's obscene, but you'd say it almost with a smirk. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and now there's like, you know, when you can be a a billionaire 50 times over and more, like, there's a place where you start going, yeah, so you, you have more money than a lot of countries. What is this?
0: Yeah. Yeah, because you, where, yeah, yeah, cause you don't say that to anybody else. Like, you don't say, oh, God, he is obscenely classy. Like... He's right. I'm obscenely hungry. Obscenely smart. Oh, God, that intelligence is just obscene. So obscenely wise. Right. No, you don't ever say that. But for some reason, acquisition and like accumulation of wealth has become a thing. And I think it's because uh, this is what I've been reflecting on in terms of our money scripts is that for me, uh, wealth is. In the back of my mind, I know that it does not—I know that it's like, as, as Ted said, it's a house of cards, right? And it's very fragile. Money, monetary systems are fragile. They always collapse. I get it. Um, but for me, it is somewhere I have been programmed that it is zero-sum. And even though I don't yeah. have a lot of money, right, uh, when I see people with a lot of money— I look at them derogatorily because I realize that maybe in some other universe their money is actually mine. Like somehow they've done something that they took it. They took it from me. <laughs> right. <laughs> that I, is I, so I, backwards. Uh,
1: I know, and I feel you, man. Like I, I've gone out of my way to teach my son not to use the word rich. Yeah. Uh, I, I catch him every time. Yeah. What is that? Yeah, and I. Well, because um, most of the time when we're saying the word "rich," nobody says the word "rich" when they're talking about something they imagine they themselves could have or be.
0: Oh yeah, No, rich is always right.
1: an other term. Yeah,
0: totally. It's
1: it's a it's a distancing kind of term. Yeah. Well, you know, rich folks, right? Yeah. Oh, guys, filthy rich, oh, right? God, they live, is you know, good. the
0: people who live behind the wall. Right. Right. There's always right. a wall.
1: Right, and. And not only is it really not fair to some people who have great wealth, but I don't want him having anything standing between him and the achievement of wealth. Now, I would like to make sure we're building in. So if you're going to have some wealth, then you have some responsibility that goes with it. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. But I don't want him to think of that as other. I don't want him to kind of, you know, have a little hitch in his step that says, if I do really well for myself that it has to be at someone's expense, and therefore I should be really suspicious of any of my own success.
0: Rich is chocolate. Rich is chocolate. That's where it's best right. to use rich. Yes. Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. A, a rich enjoyment of an amazing summer yeah. would be of you know, but rich, rich as wealthy. I don't. I don't like it. I had this experience uh, a number of years ago where. I had an opportunity to invest in a um, in a startup that was likely to do ridiculously well. Um, this was a guy who discovered he happened to be sitting on top of um, hundreds of thousands of barrels of oil, mm-hmm. and all he had to do was figure out how to get to it, and he just needed some startup money kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. And so as we're looking at this, there was a chance that It might go meteoric fast, even if we owned a small part of it, and that it would radically change our potential lifestyle. Um, And there was one other friend who was involved in this, and I kept on shushing him, especially at one point we're sitting at a coffee shop and somebody else was joining us and he was starting to share with this person like, hey, you know. We we might be doing this thing, and it might be really interesting. Could change. I mean, somebody was just catching up with us, and yeah. he was just sharing the news of this is certainly on our minds at the moment. And I was practically kicking him under the table because I didn't want anyone to know.
0: Yeah, because the pie I, only has so many pieces, can only be divided in so many size, so many shares.
1: No, it wasn't. So they didn't. In, they weren't involved at oh. all. It was that I didn't want them to see me as rich.
0: Oh. I was yeah, scared of how kind of I would damage. be perceived,
1: yeah. yeah, right, but that's how but it's not brain damage because so many people do that yeah. if if all of a sudden like imagine you and I are friends as we've been for thirty years, and the next thing you know, dodge has seventy five million dollars, mm-hmm. and I can stop working forever, I can travel anywhere I want, I can just blah blah, blah right, like I live like that other group and right mm. Mm-hmm. How long before that felt kind of weird? Yeah, that's the fear. Yeah.
0: And so it brought back all this old. I gotta ask, I gotta ask, did you invest? Did you make $75 million? Because you never told me. We did invest and it didn't work. Okay, good, well, good. Then at least we're both still equally grounded. (laughs) That's
1: what I'm talking (laughs) about, right? Like, think about your relief in knowing, like, what if I had made this huge sum of money and I never told anybody, which was Sophia's and my plan. We were just not going to tell people because we didn't want them to feel weird. Yeah, We just wanted to be the people who would, like, rent a big house on the beach and, of course, you can come. No, don't owe us anything. But we weren't Mm going to tell anyone why that was working for us. Anyway didn't end up working. That was its own disappointment. <laughs> um, I must admit. <laughs> and maybe somewhere along the way, a weird little relief. That's its own weird curiosity. But I'll tell you what it brought up for me. We lived next to these bullies when I was a kid. And they used to ask me every day. They would see me. Are you spoiled? Hey, Byard, are you spoiled? Uh-huh. Are you Are you fucking
0: spoiled? Right? Yeah.
1: Uh And I was afraid to ever receive a birthday present they would find out about. I was afraid to, like, ever... there it is. Right? Yeah. There it is. Yeah. And the fear was if somebody could see me as different from them, I was going to get hurt. Wow. And I have this feeling that so many people are walking around with a script kind of like that and that it trips them up when they're about to do really well or make a great financial decision or invest in something really smart or... Maybe just tighten their belts and work their butts off, you know, for the future in some way where they accumulate beautifully so that they can live with total comfort. Retire early or something, right? Yeah. But they're scared. Yeah. That someone's gonna squint at them and go, Really? Oh, you're the kind who retires at fifty. Uh-huh. Sure.
0: I I think I uh I look at just about all of my friends, and for any number of reasons. I, I mean, I made the choice back in the early 2000s to stop working for a big corporation, and I had a good job, and I traveled all the time, and I wore suits and ties uh, attached to them, and I did all, all of the trappings because I thought that's what I had to do, and then I realized I was missing my kids growing up, and they were very young, and I wanted to drive carpools and stuff, and so I quit, and I made a conscious choice to do those things and, as a result, make less money. The knock-on effect is now I make less money than just about all of my friends, right? Here we are a decade and a half Mm -hmm. later, and everybody's kind of reaching this other sort of point. And we have a much more just sort of modest lifestyle. And I am now, here I am, I mean, we're cresting toward 50, and I'm hearing my friends talk about, well, I'm looking at my spreadsheet and starting to project when I can retire, and to your point it is weird i don't try to make it weird but in the back of my head it's weird because i don't know how to stop myself from thinking must be nice in a in that yeah. kind of derogatory inner head voice oh must be nice to be able to start having that conversation because i'm not close to it and that's okay that's okay <laughs> really okay i've made choices and when i'm not in the middle of that conversation i'm totally rational about the choices that i've made and how excited i am to have been able to embrace the life that i had when i did i regret nothing but must be nice is still there and that's that's the this sort of i don't know the application of the script that you know that i have at work
1: it totally makes sense and are there old flashpoints for you that start to come to mind when you find yourself in that place? You, are there you, beliefs? You know, does funny. it set in like a belief, like I couldn't have that, or just that? Does it sit more yeah. neutrally, like well, oh, I just made a choice, and I, that's fine? I, I
0: was wondering about that in terms of our our role models and when those flashpoints like cement, like when they kind of really become concrete in our in our beliefs, because for me, the the Like you talk about having an opportunity to invest in a startup. I am ridiculously conservative about those kinds of alternate investments because, like, I watched my dad invest in restaurants knowing nothing about restauranteering and go bankrupt, like slowly but surely bleed financially, to the point that he had to declare bankruptcy. And this is from a healthy sort of middle-class upbringing. Like, he was fine. He had a great retirement. Everything was great. And then this thing comes along, and everybody who does know something about restaurants said, Lloyd, you don't want to do this. This is not a thing you want to do. And he said, "Okay, I think I want to do it. (laughs) It was just it blew up and it was just and then the market crashed and all sorts of terrible things. So for me, that role model happened when I behavior like watching that happen to this guy who has always made smart, rational fiscal decisions uh, and provided so much for me growing up. Um, I watched it all implode when I was like, you know, I don't know now it's been 20 uh, when I was 20, 21 and And as a result, I'm like, I I am like, look, if if it could happen to him, it could happen to me. I wasn't 10. I wasn't like in that sort of formative, like there were no bullies on the street, Um, but it was watching, watching somebody that I trust and love and believe in take a risk financially that imploded. And that has impacted my risk tolerance dramatically.
1: Right, right. Yeah, and the way those flashpoints, of course, tend to work, even the adult ones, but especially the childlike yeah. ones, those those early impressions, we tend to overcorrect. Yeah. So instead of learning, don't invest too much money in an area that's of high risk and one you don't know anything about, Like, which is a whole bunch of yeah. criteria that would be more sophisticated, we tend to just hear... Don't risk.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Don't take a risk. Here's the thing that I find <laughs> is so fascinating. Like, he's fine now, right? He, right? Bankruptcy was not a sign of failure. It was just a gate. It was just a stage in the process. And he declared it, and he restructured, and he's fine. <laughs> like, I'm the Amazing. one who wasn't able to to correct. He was able to do now. He just took it. So I, I think I, I see that in a lot of people who have struggled with financial challenges, but uh, have, a, a, I guess, a healthier mindset than than I do is just that, you know, what comes with risk is loss and what comes with loss is rebuilding. And for me, what comes with risk is loss, and what comes with loss is devastation and, you know, death and destruction and uh, scorched earth. So I better not do any of that. Like I yeah, miss the rebuilding part. I don't and and I think they they said something about this. You know, Ted said something about this, which was the you know that we we internalize the failures much more than the successes. Well, that's exactly m- my mental model of this, which was I was not I haven't been able to recontextualize for myself any of the successes that came after that bankruptcy. For me, It was just all about capital B loss, yes. Well,
1: you and I have talked briefly about this, and I guess listeners will see whether this comes to pass or not. But I've been really interested in interviewing my father-in-law as an example of a guy who doesn't fit the model. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, although I even mentioned this to Ted, and and Ted had an interesting take on how it, it probably does fit the model, but in, in really subtle ways. This was a guy who was born into extreme poverty and trauma ensued and poverty increased and his chances of getting anywhere in a family that i think literally no one had even graduated elementary school and he went on to get a doctorate Mm -hmm. and beyond that went on to do really well for himself financially it makes no freaking sense because he didn't have a single model in his whole life of someone who had ever done that Mm -hmm. um I think it'd be really fun to interview him and find out how do you make a life like that? Yeah. Like how do you how are you that free? Right. And he is so free. Um I am really interested in like how you and I get free. Yeah. And you know, we are we are not <laughs> we we don't have ankle weights like some people do. I mean, there are just folks who who s- their scripts set them up for behaviors that destine them to re-traumatize themselves financially again and again. Sure, They can work that out. It can be different. But even if you and I make no changes at all, like we're above water and we're taking good care of our kids and it's going to be okay. Yeah. And even so, I'd like to be free of anything that stands in the way of of any success we're meant for, you know? Yeah,
0: yeah. I think that's a lot. And I I think one of the things Ted says was sort of defining what it means to be I can't remember what what he was actually defining, but the result was, like, I am free because I don't owe anyone anything. And so, so much of how we, how we contextualize money and wealth in our lives is so directly, inextricably linked to how we contextualize debts in our lives, like what we owe others. Right. And whether that's credit or loans or whatever you've done to manifest the lifestyle that you have is, you know, it is to a great extent what you— what you owe someone else.
1: Well, and then what's funny about it is even that is psychological because it's really how you frame the debt. For most of us, the debt feels really weighty. Mm-hmm. Um, again, for my father-in-law, who's done really well with real estate, um, you know, he's used to investing in real estate at 18%. <laughs> oh my <goodness. laughs> Now yeah. when you can do it at, at 2.5%, he's like... Why not spend somebody else's money to buy yourself a house? Mm-hmm. Like you put a little bit of a down payment, the bank does the rest. I earn more than the two and a half percent from my tenant who buys me a house over the next 15 years. Yeah. This sounds like a great idea. How many times could we do it?
0: Yeah. <laughs> and, and the rest
1: of us are like, oh God. Yeah. And he's like, this sounds fantastic. The tenants get a great little house. They buy me one over time. <laughs> I, I mean, it's it's really uh, it's such a different way to do it. So for him, he loves debt.
0: Yeah, because debt is just another like it is a neutral existence of like just it it does is emotionally neutral. Right. Debt and it's credit part of doing business De- debt and credit are. Yeah, they're just they're just pieces of this puzzle. They're just things that you move around on a board. And I think for for me, that's not the case at all. And it's not like I'm, uh, it, like I'm out there, you know, in Ted and Brad's words, hoarding. Like, that's not what I'm doing. But I definitely see a different emotional value in a dollar than a not dollar, <laughs> a dollar right. that I have, than a dollar that I owe. And, um, and I'm not sure, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, A, how to shake it, and B, uh, I guess I'm not convinced of the value of shaking that perspective yet in my life? Like, should I be aspiring to be more like your father-in-law? Is that what we should all be working toward?
1: Um, Like, let's not get too concrete about it. So not necessarily in terms of how you think about debt.
0: No, you know, you're wrong. Um, I'm going to go ahead and do it. I'm going to go ahead and call the bank right now and just start signing out loans.
1: <laughs> <laughs> just, start, yeah, just borrow just borrowing. and borrow. No, I think his idea is there's good debt and there's bad debt. This guy doesn't carry any credit card debt. He thinks that's crazy. Um, What he's interested in, though, is like, can, can he wisely leverage debt to set up financial success over time while setting himself up with enough cash to work with? That if any of those houses doesn't work well, he knows what to do next. Yeah. Like he's not getting himself so deep in debt that he has no way back out. Um, yeah. Anyway, I guess that's the idea. My, what I'm interested in though is like, so one way or another, whether he's using debt one way and Ted's using it another, both of them have found success and a kind of um, a freedom from that financial burden. The script that says, whatever I do from here, it's just going to get harder. (laughs) I'm screwed or this isn't going to go well. Uh, And they seem to be free from that sort of limited thinking that says, like, I'm only ever going to get to about here before probably something goes wrong or or I am wrong because I shouldn't have more than this.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah. And that's what gets you to the, uh, oh, I just paid off my debt. I guess I better take the family out to dinner. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, like it's uh, like, how easy is it to get into a healthy money mindset until you don't owe anybody anything, and all of a sudden you kind of feel that urgency to spend.
1: Right. I I need a little bit. I mean, yeah. it, it I mean, seems sh- silly to just leave that credit card at zero. I should probably get that <laughs> new
0: computer, right? Like, I I need I that. To, and to as long as I'm getting bad. a computer, I better get iPads.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> get some more. There's a watch that could go nicely with that. Right. Yeah. Um, It's it's easy to do. And it's interesting, just kind of our programming around that, you know, he talked about working with a um, with a very wealthy person who was burning money way faster than she was making it. Yeah. Um, And her financial team was, you know, the best of the best. And they were frantically trying to get her to stop spending that much money because she was spending more than she was bringing in. Um, And so they called Ted because he's kind of a wizard with this stuff. And so he thought about it a while and called the team back and he said, OK, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go get those giant sticky notes. You know, those things are as big as a poster. And let's go 10 years back whenever this started and show what were the assets how much money, how much cash, what were the investments like, what what did you own, all of those things, and 10 years back, you know, write that date on there for that year and write all the assets, and then right next to it, go nine years back and write all the assets at that point, and eight years back, and seven years back, and six, all the way around to what she's got now. Please hang all of those in a conference room, um, and I will meet you there with her at whatever point you tell me to get there. So they follow his instructions. He shows up and um, he talks with her and says, I just want you to see something and takes her to the wall and says, would you read this out loud to me? And she reads out loud what she had 10 years ago. And then he says, great, well done. I'd like you to tear this up, please. And he hands it to her and makes her rip it into a million tiny little pieces and throw them on the floor. And then she reads out loud. What did she have nine years ago, which was a shorter list, but not by too much. And eight years ago, and seven years ago, and six years ago, and she gets to maybe five or four and bursts into tears and turns around and screams at her financial team, why didn't anyone tell me? As she sees this list dwindling year over year over year. And at that point, because of course they told her a hundred times, she couldn't feel it though. Wow. She couldn't feel it until she had to tear up the pages and see them on the floor.
0: But how often do we do that and not even recognize, like, you're saying this exercise, and I realize I should do that for myself. Like, that exercise would be useful for everyone.
1: Yep. Yep. Wouldn't it be neat to just be able to track, right? And unfortunately, the pretty little graphs, though, they help a lot in the downward-pointing arrow or whatever— it, it's useful, but there's something about the experiential yeah. exercise of, I'm going to write this whole thing down, see the all of it, tear it up, and then look at a smaller list. Yeah. Tear that up and look at a smaller list. There's something about the physical act that really changes how things work. And what I think Ted would tell us, and I believe did in episode three, season one, was the part of our brain that makes decisions, repeated ones, habitual ones, isn't the conscious part of the brain. It's not a linear math problem where we add one plus one plus one and we get to three and then we decide let's pick three. There's all this weird sort of fuzzy math that happens on the right side of the brain that's much more physical than that. And if you don't activate that part of the brain and body while you're considering something, that part of the brain doesn't get involved. Yeah. You can decide all you want with the left brain, but the right brain has to be involved or you don't actually make a different. You don't make a
0: change. Well, it isn't that. I mean, that's that's uh, probably most of our relationship with money is because of that imbalance.
1: Yes. And as he would say, you know, like they say in Britain, as you go to get on the, you know, on the tube, <laughs> like, mind the gap. Mind
0: the gap. Ted feels
1: like mind the gap is is really financial psychology. It's the gap between what you mean to do with money and what you really do with money. There's a gap there with a whole lot of rich information. Hmm. Yep. So we end up in financial behaviors that look like, you know, denial or compulsive buying or scripts that sound like, I will spend 103% of what I have, no matter how much I have.
0: Yeah. Yeah. In spite of the fact that we have those stories like Ted was talking about, about the the young man who saved 99 cents of every dollar and now owns a bunch of right. like burger joints or something.
1: Right. Right. That can be a whole other script.
0: Yeah. And the problem I'll is...
1: I'll only ever spend 50%. Yeah,
0: right. Like uh, the, the it, We started that with our kids when they were very young. You know, we did the three jar thing, right? There's, there's savings, spending, and charity. So everything they mm-hmm. got, they had to put a little bit in each... In each thing and we got to the point where they were choosing kind of the percentages early on we told them kind of what the percentages should be and they you know um, now they have actual bank accounts and uh, who the hell knows what they're doing I hope I hope I did all right I think my job is done um, you, you did great and what would you think
1: about adding one more jar and asking him to keep doing this and the one extra jar would be investing
0: yeah dang it Ugh, oh, missed the boat
1: no, you didn't. you still time.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right. Thanks, Thanks to say, the pandemic, they're actually still here. <laughs> <laughs> right. You've got time. But also, it's a perfect
1: time for Sophie, your oldest, yeah. college-age Sophie, to just start investing yeah, for right. forever. Like, the money she invests today is worth, what, 10, 20 times what she'll invest just, yeah. you know— uh, well, when, a couple of decades from now when it seems important d- to get started.
0: Yeah, and we did. We just got her an IRA uh, because she turned 18 and that was the thing you do. And so delightfully, like we're we're kind of starting that path. And I I just hope that we're, you know, we're just ahead enough that we can instill some habits.
1: Oh, sure. Yeah. Absolutely you can get all excited and high five like crazy when like she starts getting a return that's a little above where she had it and it's like look at that. Yeah. Now it's doing your work. Yeah. It's working for you instead of the other way around.
0: Right, right. Powerful.
1: Yep. <clears throat> there are all sorts of great things that can get started early and it's still early.
0: Yeah. And and then you get out of like for me I I racked up a ton of credit card debt in college. I was a disaster. And so I had to take Drastic action when I left college. And I had a different career in mind. And then I ended up over moving over to uh, overseas because, I don't know, somehow they could pay me a lot more for doing what I was doing. My expenses were so low because they were covered. I was, you know, teaching. And I had to do that, take extraordinary action, change my life path to, over the course of a year, pay off an extraordinary amount of debt. And the problem with that is I learned that I could take extraordinary action to pay off debt. Yeah, And then you have another cycle <laughs> thus is born, which is, oh, right. So if I get into a little debt, I'll always be able to take extraordinary action.
1: Right. right. I'll always no big have deal. those
0: choices. Fact, but the problem is come as you get was- more and uh, more and more down life's path, the, the your ability to take extraordinary action gets smaller. I can't up and leave the country now to go make a bunch of money to pay off extraordinary debt i have too many obligations now here so that script has to change or had to change and um i think that's like how i just wish for anyone that like in terms of please let my life serve as a warning to others that we can avoid making those mistakes by heading off those negative scripts earlier. And that's so much of what I think Brad and and Ted were going for that really stuck with me.
1: Yep. I like bridging in our afterthought series like this back to previous episodes because there's so much of this that ties together. And one of the ones that flashes to mind is Nikki and her wonderful episode about ADHD. Yeah. How so? It's super common with folks who've got ADHD to end up in financial trouble. Not guaranteed, not a life sentence (laughs) by any means, but it's really common in part because of the impulsivity that makes it easy to spend money quickly. And then for some, though you can, of course, learn your way out of this, especially with some help, um, the kind of diligence it takes to fix it, because it's so much faster to spend than it is to pay it off, can be lacking, yeah. Right, yeah. Totally. Uh, and so, making a financial plan takes a whole bunch of executive functioning. Sticking to a financial plan, boring as that can be, after a certain point, takes a whole bunch of executive. Fun- I mean, that like it's the kind of thing where if you're out there and you're listening and you're deciding, I don't just wish my finances were different; I want my finances to be different. And I'm going to choose to make them different. I choose that today. If you get to the choose point and you have ADHD, mm-hmm. decide who you're going to ask to help. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're going to want that. And hey, if you don't have ADHD, then guess what? Decide who you'd like to have help yeah. because you're going to need it too. Yeah. yeah. Whether it's a financial therapist or just a great financial planner, the research shows even financial planners do better if they have a financial planner managing their own money.
0: <laughs> yeah, because you don't you lose objectivity.
1: Totally you do. Yeah. 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 And it's much harder to stick to a plan when it's your own plan and your own money for some reason than yeah. if it's just your job to take great care of somebody
0: else. But I, I will say, like, once you I, I feel like we discovered YNAB last year. Uh, ynab Mm -hmm. the software tool you need a budget and i've struggled with software tools for a long time that i can that that really kind of trigger in my head a new way to think about you know daily weekly monthly spending and saving and you need a budget was that thing for me um and it has changed our behavior so dramatically by the way it asks us to make little decisions every day that it it has become deceptively simple to change our overall trajectory of saving. And that has been life-changing for us, just absolutely life-changing. And I went just bonkers with this tool. I mean, the CEO has this podcast he's done. He has like 400 episodes. I listened to every one of them. I would put them on and listen to (laughs) them as I fall asleep at night. I'd wake up to them. I'd shower with him. Uh, It was uh, an extraordinary uh, sort of investment of time into this because it triggered so much in me that um, that that felt like home, and yeah. I, so I even look at at it is simple, not easy, to make financial change in your life. It's simple, not easy, as all things really. When you boil it down, simple but not easy. But it's totally possible to suddenly have. Not hundreds of dollars in the bank, not tens of dollars in the bank, but thousands of dollars in the bank. If you're like many, many people out there who who are struggling with those, those kinds of choices.
1: That's exactly the kind of help I'm talking about is like somebody and something that helps you create a system. Yep. And if you get to a place where you know exactly what the system is and you're finding it really hard to stick to a system you know how to use. Yeah there might be some of this stuff that Ted and Brad are talking about that's involved somewhere, you know, in that gap. Yeah. And that's where it gets really interesting to go back and find out, okay, so what are some of my earliest memories around money? And what did they teach me? Like, what's the belief that followed? Yeah. And what are some of the behaviors that... I currently employ to to make sure that I remain right. <laughs> Our brains really like to be correct. It's very scary not to know. We'd rather know something we don't want to know than not know. Oh yeah. So if what we know is I'm never going to have very much money, Pete,
0: then it's okay cuz you check that we box. Know.
1: Right. Now I just all I got to do is keep on acting like a guy who doesn't have very much money. It's going to be fine. I won't surprise myself there. Yep. And, you know, over and over again, they find with people who win the lottery, literally, they tend to behave just like they did beforehand. If they were good with money beforehand, they do fine. If they weren't good with money beforehand, if they're used to living paycheck to paycheck, then the lottery becomes one giant paycheck. And as soon as they can get that all spent, they're back to home.
0: amazing it is amazing it it is amazing and uh it's a little bit scary because i've never been i've never been that person who just suddenly has a a windfall of that sort but i've all you know you always hear this like you know and, and we said it on the show like there's this uh um you know if i just had a little bit more it'd be fine if i just had enough it'd be i'd be fine i'd be able to live comfortably and that you know you say all that and then you get all that money and you you never really find peace. There's a part of me that just I just would like to try. <laughs> I would just like to try to have that much so that I didn't have to think about it and could just get on with the other stuff in, in my life. I would like to see how that hits me. Probably not great. I know my brain, but uh but but I sure do I don't like living in the constant sort of month to month like question. What's going to happen next month? That's going to be a stress. You know, when's my house going to need a new roof? When's my furnace going to blow? So,
1: I mean, as sweet as the humility is, like, could you hear as you were saying that the way in which, like, the script was saying, you know, probably not. I mean, who who would I be to be the kind of guy who had enough money that I didn't have to worry? Like, there was kind of that 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 question. There was a little bit of, like, I wonder...
0: Yeah, no, you're right. No, you just called it. Didn't... You called it on me. Yeah, you called me on it. That's exactly right. Um, yeah, it's that, that was yeah. the script in play. <clears throat> there
1: was the script in play right there. And you said something right after our episode with Ted, like, as, you know, we were wrapping up and just getting ready to put our computers away and stuff, that <laughs> really stuck with me. You're like, you know... I think the thing I really want from wealth, if I could have enough money, is just finally the freedom to not have to think about money before I spend it. And then I realized, you know, I could do that anytime I want. (laughs) I could go spend something without (laughs) thinking about it right now. And we both had this big laugh, and I was like, oh, my God, that's what a whole lot of people do. They just want to not have to think about it. That's what wealth is for, is just so you don't have to think about it. And the truth is... You know, it doesn't last very long if you don't ever think about well, it. Well, <laughs> yeah, and
0: the truth is, as Brad and Ted's research has, has indicated, it's it's only the people who have thought about it that become wealthy, right? It's right. it's only the people who are conscientious about it. And that's, you know, back to, to YNAB and that switch that flipped from my brain, which was like, Oh right. It's only when we started thinking about it that the numbers starting adding started adding and not subtracting month over yeah. month. Yeah. Um, And that's what's so
1: fun about your example is you've enjoyed it. Yeah, it's been really fun. I mean, maybe not everybody has to listen to all 400 episodes to get there. But what you're describing is like you've called me for a bunch of time over that period saying, dude, this is really cool. Yeah. Like it helps you age your money. And now you start looking at, look, I'm spending money that I I earned 60 days ago instead of money I earned day before yesterday. Yeah. (laughs) That's really feels good. It's what the first it time that money,
0: metaphor, I... like that money metaphor, has really flipped for me. That it's made sense about yeah. what yeah, what it, wealth it, is, and that's what inherited wealth is. It's spending money today that somebody earned decades ago. Age of yes, money, right? right?
1: Or more than that, right?
0: Yeah, generations. I would like.
1: I would like to say I was really fortunate to grow up with examples of ancestral wealth that was um, healthy and mindful and good for the community. Uh, Like, I grew up knowing that there was something out there that I didn't know a lot about until kind of adulthood when I went to finally really check it out. There was this thing in New York called the Dodge Foundation. (laughs) And this was started by a, you know, great, great, great grandfather kind of person who at some point started to make I mean, he already had wealth. He happened to make a widget that was really useful in World War One, And the U.S. Army, I think, came to him saying, hey there, um, we're going to need a whole lot of those. And he went to his minister at some point and said, I'm about to make a whole lot of wealth in this war, like a whole lot more. And it doesn't sit right. And his minister said, well, what would you like to do with it instead? If you don't feel like it feels good to accumulate it, what do you want to do? And he said, I'd like to give it away. So he set up a foundation, and all the money he made in World War One went into this foundation. And more than 100 years later, it's still managed by the family that created it wow. and has given away more than $50 million in that amount of time um, to communities and uh, underserved populations and has has done a lot of good. And I just want to say, like, I want to be that guy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. There are There's... folks with wealth who do amazing things with it.
0: The problem is, today, those stories are that are unsullied are fewer and farther between, right? We were just watching yeah. CBS Sunday Morning and they were talking about the Sackler family. And the Sackler family, of course, is a deeply conflicted and controversial family. They have generational wealth invested in museums and concert halls and buildings supporting the arts because that's one of the things that they hold dear. And also the opioid crisis, right? I mean, also, they're the family behind OxyContin. And that, it's hard as you see institutions, organizations taking the Sackler name off of their buildings and refusing donations now from this extraordinarily wealthy family, the family likely to carry much of their wealth with them after this crisis because of you know their financial advisors and, and structural uh, issues, um, it, it's hard not to look at that and say, hey, there has been a lot of of good invested into the arts that they just poisoned that they just they just poisoned and so yeah. that's one of the things when you t- when you say obscenely wealthy to me that's what i think of somebody who's so wealthy that they really that entitlement comes with this the the freedom to do such ill because they bought their way into good yeah yeah It's hard. So the Dodge Foundation example, like, I don't know the background of that example either, but that's one of the things that still sounds pure. And I want more of those examples, right? I want more of that sort of, I want to hear more of that. Yeah.
1: I have no idea how far somebody would have to dig before they found some example of humanness in there that was imperfect. I'll bet you that guy, once upon a time, didn't do everything right. But he did that right. Yeah, And the Foundation has done a lot of things right. And... However, imperfect I may be, showing up with wealth someday, I I hope, you know, I would do something right. Um I'd like to build I'd like to build new money scripts and better, wiser, healthier behaviors so that I could be less anxious around money and yeah. do more good with it.
0: Boy, that's a That's triggering. Anxious around money yeah, for man. me too. I'll tell you.
1: Just doesn't I don't want it to be a scary thing anymore. Right. I want it to be largely a hopeful thing. And there are a bunch of places where it is for me, but there are times also where I'm just like I'm kind of sweating it. Uh, and I'm like, why? Yeah. Why?
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, and that's I, I think I, I got a lot out of, of Ted and Brad talking about that. And really I, I think I needed to listen to that twice just to to get the examples out that they start dropping, right? About, you know, the um, You know, the examples of money mindset and the way wealthy people have naturally, like the wealthiest of people don't communicate wealth. And the fact that our, you know, our social media lessons are all the wrong lessons of wealth because people who are showboating have are reported they report having the least they need the most to support their habits of spending. And the people who are wealthiest are, you know still wearing their their odds. yeah modest they they don't they may be 50 times wealthier but they only spend two times as much that's i think was one of the stats
1: that's uh, a fascinating one well for everybody out there listening i'd really encourage you to pick up some you know a book or two by those guys cuz they've got great exercises in there chances for you to really kind of work with your stuff probably be neatest of all if you could do it with a friend or a group or your spouse so that you have a chance to like talk about it a little bit. Um, it's a really, it, these things are very much changeable. And I know there's somebody out there who's stressing as you hear this and have he- heard that episode and thought, oh man, I'm hopelessly screwed up. And even if you're screwed up, you're in great company and it's not hopeless. This is very much changeable.
0: Uh, I I got the audio book. Nice. The Money Mammoth Audiobook narrated by Graham Rowett. He's got a good voice. He's definitely an energetic audio reader. He's a very energetic audio reader. You will want to do (laughs) something with your money after you listen to this guy.
1: (laughs) Fantastic. really good. All right, man. Uh, I better run.
0: Yeah. Good to see you, buddy. Love you.
1: Good to see you. Love you, too.